Revelation chapter 11. We have, as we've been looking in Revelation, we've, we, we've kind of hit a point in the book where you're going to notice some change. John, in the first couple of chapters, talks to the churches that are in the seven cities of Asia Minor. Um, those seven churches that really, in some ways, represent the church as a whole. Um, a lot of the same problems you see in those seven churches you see in churches today. Um, you've seen them throughout time. Some have thought that they're indicative of periods of history. And in a kind of a sense, they, they are somewhat, but they're also indicative of different problems and different scenarios that churches face all over the world throughout the history of the Christian faith. And then in chapter 4, he transitions from the things that are to the things that will be the things which are yet to come. And we've been looking through chapter 4 all the way up through 10. We've seen the seven um, seals, the the scroll with seven seals, and who is worthy to open the scroll. And it's Jesus that's worthy to open the scroll. Uh, And that brings forth lots of praise in heaven. And as he opens the seals, different things begin to happen. God begins to set the stage for what's yet to happen. And when that seventh seal is opened... um, there's a new thing that begins to happen. Seven trumpets. And we're in the middle of the sixth trumpet. And just like with the seven seals, the sixth seal was kind of elongated. It, it, it happens, the, the seal open, is opened, and then there's kind of a period of a couple of chapters before the seventh one is open. So a lot of quick action, bam, 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 through the first five, and then the sixth, it kind of slows down. And we see the heavenly scene. We see the praise and worship of God in the throne room. We see the saints sealed with the seal of God, the 144,000 in the beginning of Revelation 7. And then finally, in chapter 8, that seventh seal finally happens. And the same thing is happening here. There are six trumpets, and on the sixth trumpet, there's a long wait between the time the sixth trumpet blows and the seventh trumpet blows. And we've looked at that a little bit. Last week we saw the angel with the scroll. This giant angel with this tiny looking scroll in his hand. And how how that showed us the majesty and the knowledge of God and how God is in control. And our part, our part as the seers, so to speak, our part as the ones who see the revelation of God coming to pass and our role in taking that to others, warning others, letting them know what's to come and that God is nothing, no one to play around with. All of that leads us into chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we meet two particular people that have quite a story to tell. Revelation chapter 11. I want to read for you the first three verses, and then we'll make comment and continue from there. Revelation 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. 
clothed in sackcloth. At the beginning of this chapter, it's almost a whiplash effect. In chapter 10, John is overwhelmed with the sight of this angel and the things that are happening, the description of the angel, almost like describing God. He talks about the way this angel looks and the way this angel acts, and it's almost as if the angel is God. And it might be the angel of the Lord. It might be one of those types where it looks like an angel, but it's really God. And it might not be. It might just be an angel serving God. But in either case, he gives us a good image of what God looks like. But in chapter 12, it's almost like a, a, a whiplash. John is given this measuring rod and he's told, go measure. Oh, Some people take this allegorically. Some people take it literally. Some people take it in different kind of ways. What exactly is he measuring? Is he measuring the physical temple? Is he measuring the temple in heaven? Is he is is the temple here a stand-in for something else? What's interesting to me is this idea of measuring. When you look throughout the scripture, and and it's not just a scriptural thing, it's something in in society. It's something that we encounter on a daily basis. When we think of measuring something, often we think of measuring something as a way to test it. Is it long enough? So you're building something. You want to make sure that the wood is long enough to do what you're trying to do with it. If it's too long, it needs to be cut. If it's too short, it won't work. We need something else. And so in a sense, a measuring is kind of a way of testing. If you remember in the book of Daniel, there's a particular night where the king is having a feast he is celebrating and everybody is, is having lots of fun and doing all kinds of stuff. And then suddenly a hand appears out of nowhere and writes on the wall, Mine, Mine, Tekel, Ufarsin. Do you remember that? Do you remember, do you remember the handwriting on the wall story? Well, what does that mean? Measured, measured, lacking, given away. Your days have been numbered, Daniel ends up interpreting the dream. They've been measured, and they're not good enough. I see in this Revelation chapter 11 the command to measure, and it's almost a way of testing. And you'll see exactly why I say that in just a moment. There are some that think that the temple here is descriptive of the physical temple. He's actually told to go measure the temple. And then there are some that say, no, 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 the temple is representative of the church. Maybe that's the case. But in either case, he is told to measure Test it. Rise and measure the temple, the altar, those who worship there. That may be the key. Maybe John is not just told to measure the physical building, but to take stock of the ones worshiping. You see, if I could for a moment, let me draw the picture. Every single one of us faced a moment, faces a moment of measuring. Every single one of us faces a time when God measures us and asks the question, does this person measure up? And that's exactly what I'm seeing. In the beginning of this chapter, it's, it's, it's like John is being given the task. You are going to see if the people worshiping in God's house measure up. Now, is this Israel or is this the church? Or is it both? Perhaps it's the people of God regardless of ethnicity. But don't measure the court outside, verse 2. 
Leave that out for it is given over to the nations. I want to, I want to draw another picture here. In AD 70, Jerusalem was overrun. In about 60, in, during the year 66, the Romans began to siege the city. And when they began to siege the city, there were a lot of different things going on. But one of the things that was happening were some false prophets came in. And they declared to the people of Jerusalem, God won't let the city fall. But if the Romans happen to get in, he absolutely will not ever let the temple be destroyed. And so these false prophets would convince folks once the Romans broke through the walls, once their siege had finally had its effect and they broke through the walls and got into the city, run for the temple because God will protect you there. Well, about three and a half years after that siege started, the temple lay in ruins. You see, God allowed the temple to be destroyed just like Jesus said it would. Just like in Matthew 24 when he says, look around at this place. You, you think this is impressive. They're telling him, look at how nice this is. Look how great this temple is. Look at all of these wonderful buildings. And Jesus says, you think this is impressive. There's coming a time when this hill gets destroyed and there's not going to be one stone left on another. Contrast the destruction of the temple with the promise in Revelation 11. Measure the temple, measure those who worship there, but don't worry about the outer courts because that will be trampled. It's implicit. It's not directly there, but it is there. God is showing that this place of, of inner sanctum, this, this holy place where the people are worshiping is the place that will not be trampled. The outer courts will be. Oh, they'll get, they'll get in to the complex but not in here. There is a divine protection that's going to occur for God's people. There's a lot of things to come in this book. But what isn't coming is the destruction of God's people. And so the first thing I want to tell you, the first thing that I want you to hear out of this passage is that God is protecting his people. Now that doesn't mean we don't suffer. That doesn't mean we don't have heartaches. That doesn't mean we don't have anguish or grief. That's not what that means. But in times of persecution, God's church moves forward. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's just as true now as it ever has been. Maybe in many parts of the world, maybe even more so. Verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days. If the months, the 42 months are 30-day months, which in, in Jewish uh, calendar they would be, then you get 1,260 days. Notice also something else about this. Notice that they're not prophesying clothed in rich man's clothes. They're not prophesying in silk suits with shiny teeth. They're not prophesying in great accommodations. They don't live in five-star hotels. They don't dine with the excesses of luxury. They're wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth, well, that's, that's what you wear when you're mourning. That's what you wear when you're grieving. That's what you wear when you're suffering. When Job, everything is taken away from him, what does he do? He puts on sackcloth, covers his head in ashes, and goes and sits in a trash heap 
because that's what you do when you're mourning. The picture of these two witnesses, the very first thing we see about them is that they're mourning. This is not a joyful experience. Verse 4, let's, let's read more about these witnesses. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of earth. Now, who are these men? Who are these ones? Well, he compares them. He says that they're the two olive trees. Well, those are representative of Israel. The olive tree was a representation of Israel. Remember when Jesus curses the fig because it's not producing fruit. Remember when throughout the Old Testament, trees are brought up as places of worship. They're brought in as examples when the, when the seed grows into a great tree big enough that birds can nest in its branches. When the, when, when the tree in the, in the garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is taken from and the tree of life, has to be guarded. This concept of trees rose all throughout the Old and New Testaments. And one of the ways that Israel could be described was as the olive tree. It's the olive branch. It's the, it's the one that God had chosen among the nations. A symbol of God's peace that would come eventually through His Messiah. And then there's two lampstands. Where have we seen two lampstands? All throughout Revelation, we see two lampstands. In fact, back in Revelation chapter 1, we see these seven golden lampstands in the vision that John has of Jesus Christ. And who are the, what are those lampstands? What do they represent? They represent the churches. And so it's almost as if he's saying, these, these two men represent the faithful of God throughout all ages. Some think they're Moses and Elijah. Some think they're, they're specific people that have already come before. Some think they've never even come before. That doesn't matter. Who they are doesn't matter. Another thing that's important about this, when you consider witnesses in rabbinic literature, in, in, in Jewish custom, you can't have one witness to bring a claim. you got to have two. You can't just have one person say something and it be accepted by a court of law. you got to have a second one to agree. In fact... The hardest thing for the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin to do when Jesus is arrested is find a charge that they can get two witnesses to agree on. They can't do it. Not until finally the high priest just says, are you the son of God? These two witnesses that stand before the Lord of the earth and they're given power. Verse 5, and if anyone would harm them, Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. These are two men with power. And man, you better not mess with them because fire is shooting out of their mouths both figuratively in the prophecy that is burning people, convicting them of sin, the Holy Spirit just pouring out from them as they speak truth, but also literally it's actual flames coming from their mouth, killing anyone who would harm them. These men have power. 
like Elijah, to cut the rain off, to tell the sky, stop, and it ceases from pouring. They have power over waters, power to turn them into blood like like, like in the plagues of Egypt. Isn't that interesting? These two witnesses have power over nature to do the things that only God can do. They must be God's witnesses. In fact, the word used for witness here is the word martyr. They're martyrs. They are faithful witnesses of God who declare His truth. And, like martyrs, they'll die. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So here we go. After their days are over, they have been prophesying for three and a half years and nobody's been able to stop them. What happens? We have our first encounter with a beast. I'm not, I'm not going to fall into the trap of getting into all the details about the beast tonight. There's coming a time when we talk about that. And trust me, that, that's, there's plenty of rabbit trails to go down on that. But we have here the very first time that somebody is actively persecuting the Christian church in the days which lie ahead. In this book, the persecution has been faced by the churches in that day. Churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia come to mind. But in this passage, we see for the first time an enemy of God actively persecuting his church. Up until now, it's been God's judgments. Up until now, it's been God's actions against sinful humanity. Actions that have been, well, quite frankly, deserved. Actions that have, that have exercised God's wrath and yet also that have provided opportunity for repentance. We've seen God taking the action against sinful men, but now we see somebody, and we'll get to who shortly. Just, just hang on for a few weeks and we'll get there. But we see somebody actively opposing the church of God and seeking to destroy it. In this case, in the form of the two witnesses. And he succeeds. He makes war on them. He conquers them. He kills them. Just like the body of Christ crucified in the holy city, so would their bodies lie crucified in that same city. Something else about this. The city is described symbolically. It is symbolically or spiritually, your virgin might have, called Sodom in Egypt. Why would it be called those things? Sodom. That's the city of great sin. That's the city that Lot is living in. When the angels come to visit him and they have to run him out of town to spare him from the coming judgment of God. That's Sodom. That's the city that we know the, we have something called sodomy after the city of Sodom. That's where that name comes from. It's a city of terrible sin. A city that not only is sinful, but is rushing into sin. A city that's unrepentant of its sin. And then Egypt. What, what role does Egypt play? Egypt. That's the place where the Israelites were held captive. What started as relief from famine 
ended up being a 400-year captivity. Egypt is the place of slavery. In fact, when God brings them out of Egypt, he tells them, I'm Yahweh. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. And then he begins the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. It's on the basis of God bringing them out of slavery in Egypt that God can tell Israel, these are the things that will define your life as my people. This is how you will make known that you belong to me. I've redeemed you. I've bought you. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've brought you out of slavery. And now you will live for me by these rules. God establishes a covenant with Israel, something unheard of. In the ancient world, no God deals with his people like Yahweh deals with his. And yet, instead of being the people called out of slavery, they are the people that are now called by the place of slavery. Instead of being the people that live by God's commandment, they are the people who have turned back and put themselves back into slavery, to sin, to godlessness. That's that's the city of Jerusalem. May that not be us. Verse 9, for three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. You might not have noticed this, but back in verse 11, John has said that he was to again prophesy. He takes the scroll from the angel, he eats it, and it's sweet as honey in his mouth and bitter on his stomach. And then he's told right after, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. And it's almost verbatim that those same many peoples and tribes, languages and nations gaze at the dead bodies of the witnesses in verse 9. And not only that, not only do they gaze, the, the idea here isn't just that they glance. The idea is here that they look with hatred, with disgust, with animosity, with self-satisfaction, and jeering, and confidence. And they don't even let somebody bury them. No, no, no. These guys are to be an example. Leave them out. Let their bodies rot. We don't care. Let them stink. Let all the maggots and all the fly track to them. We don't care. We don't care how disgusting it is. Because that's a sign of the people who so terribly treat us. Don't think hatred won't do that to you because that's exactly what hatred does. And those who dwell on the earth, verse 10, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Plague after plague, sign after sign, problem after problem, and all of it is because of these two guys. These two witnesses, I'm glad they're dead, the world says. Let's celebrate. Verse 11, but after three and a half days, God doesn't let, God doesn't let death win. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. This is not that they got up. No. This is a breath of life from God. The giver of life. A breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. How would you feel? 
Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. How would you like to be one of the people who is spitting on the bodies, who's jeering, who's celebrating their death, and suddenly they get up and they rise up into heaven just like Jesus had? How would you feel? I tell you what, I, I, I wouldn't feel very good. I'd feel nervous. I'd feel scared of what's to come. And rightfully so. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. I read that and I thought, finally, finally, something has gotten through to these people. Finally, they are realizing their mistakes. Finally, they are giving God the glory He deserves. If only it would last. You know, there's a passage where someone else gives glory to God. In Joshua chapter 6, the Israelites attack Jericho. And we know the story from Sunday school, I'm sure. If you grew up in church, you know it. You march around the wall one time every day for six days, and then you march around seven times, and they blow the trumpet and the city walls fall. God said everything in Jericho is to be devoted to destruction. Don't take anything. Don't take, don't take any goods, any possessions. Don't hold any animals back. Don't take any any people with you as your servants. Don't do any of that. Everything is devoted to God for destruction. And guess what? Somebody decides to take some stuff. And, at the, and in chapter 7, Israel, unaware of this person's sin, goes to attack this little tiny town that's so small it can only fit two letters in its name. And this small town of Ai whips up on the Israel army and sends them running. People of Israel are distraught. How could this happen? And they beg God, please, please don't destroy us. And God says, what are you doing whining to me? There's sin in your camp. Joshua figures out a way. He, He calls all the tribes together and they draw lots and one tribe is chosen, and among that tribe, they draw a lot for some of the elders, and they get it down to a, a group of families, and then finally down to one single man. And then Joshua tells this man, Achan, he says, give glory to God and confess what you've done. I'm afraid that's the give glory that John says here. I don't think they're repenting. I don't think they're praising the God of heaven. Admitting you're wrong is a good first step but I'm afraid it's the only step they take. God offers forgiveness, and just admitting that you have a problem is not enough. Just saying, I am a sinner, is not enough. It's a good first step. Boy, is it a necessary first step. You don't become a Christian. You don't become a child of God until you're willing to admit that you got a sin problem and that you need some help beyond you. But that can't be all. It can't just be saying, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. It can't just be you saying, I am so terrible, look at how bad I am. That's not enough. Now, genuine repentance goes beyond, I'm sorry. It goes to please forgive me and then on to, I'm going to make this right. And I'm afraid the repentance here falls far short. They're scared. They've seen their mistakes. They're looking them dead in the eye but they're not willing to repent. You know, repent, there's two parts of that. There is the idea of stop. There's also the idea of turn around. They're not willing to go all the way. So the second woe has passed. 
And behold, the third woe is soon to come. The story of the two witnesses, of the reaction of people to them, shows us a couple things. It shows us that when we are doing God's work, when we are prophesying, when we are teaching, when we are preaching the truth, when we are telling people the word of God, we're going to be opposed. And sometimes that opposition is outright persecution. And sometimes that persecution ends up being our death sentence. But just as surely as we're opposed, we're also protected. Oh, the physical things may happen. Death may come. These witnesses didn't avoid death. But when you're doing God's work, until the time comes for you to die, you will be protected from death. And when the time comes for you to die, death ain't the end anyway. So I want to encourage you, church, be faithful in your witnessing. Whether it's a little thing or a big thing, whether it's raising a child or sharing Christ with a neighbor, be faithful in your witnessing. Maybe it takes it a little bit different way. Maybe you got a call instead of visit. Maybe you visit from a little bit further away. Maybe, maybe you have to be a little more creative in how you go about it. But be faithful in it. Because even though they can hurt the body, even though they can kill you, even though they can celebrate at your demise, you're still his. And once they kill you, that's all they can really do to you. And death ain't the end for God's children. The other thing that I want you to see is that sorrow is not enough for repentance. It's a good first step, but there's another step that has to come. You might be wondering, you might be saying to yourself, I don't, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to just be sorry. I want to, I want God to change me. If you will comment on this or you will contact the church, let us know. We'll be glad to talk with you on how how you can know the saving faith that protects you even in the vilest of situations. How you can have a faith that's worth dying for like these witnesses did and see the resurrection hope that comes to those who are faithful, to those who trust in God. We want to help you with that. Contact us, let us know, and we'll be glad to tell you how to do that. Let me pray for us all. Father, I pray that these scriptures, these words of life, these things would soak down deep into us that they would, like like seeds on good ground, that they would get deep enough into the soil to grow, that they would get the nutrition that they need, the watering and the, the, the nutrients out of the soil of our hearts to produce great fruit for you. Father, we recognize there's nothing wrong with the seed. The seed's your word. If there's a problem, it's with the soil of our hearts. Father, we beg you, help us have good soil. Help us receive your word and put it into practice. Help us live according to the things you've spoken. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. We look forward to seeing you again soon. We'll be in contact this week on whether we're going to continue just live stream only or be able to open up the church back. We'll keep a keep on top of the situation and let you know that in coming days. We'll also be putting a lot of stuff online. We're going to have these messages uh, on CDs available to those who can't come out. We're going to be in contact with members. So we pray that you are doing well and look forward to talking with all of you in the coming days. Um, God bless you and let us know if we can help you in any way. Glad We're certainly glad to do it. Love you, church. See you next time.